Hello there, you magnificent geeky people. Welcome back. This is Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views and reviews as we go geeking with Destination Venus. Was that a bit radio DJ? That was a bit radio DJ, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Anyway, on with the news. Now, I'm going to open with what I'm going to call a private conversation, a private conversation about our frustration, about our frustration. Because this is deeply frustrating. If you were listening last week, you will know that in solidarity with the Writers Guild of America and the Screen Actors Guild, I am not going to be promoting shows by any of the studios that those two august institutions are currently in dispute with. SAG and the WGA are on strike. They've been on strike for a while. Their members are experiencing a deal of hardship and they do not want to be doing things that aid and abet the producers because they're the bad guys. Honestly, seriously. Think of that Mitchell and Webb sketch. You know, the, are we the baddies? Because they haven't figured it out yet, I don't think. But they are. I'm not going to name the show that I just quoted from, and that was a quote. I am just going to voice my frustration that I make a principled stance just in time to not be able to talk about one of the best hours of television in easily the last 20 years, possibly ever. And that's annoying, frankly. It's deeply, deeply, deeply annoying. But I stand by it. Uh, in SAG, AFRA and WGA strike news, there's no news, really. The Producers Guild are not budging. There's been some nice foldy roll uh, around uh, one of the executives. I want to say it was Bob Iger, Bob Iger, but it probably wasn't. He's the guy in charge at Disney. I don't think it was, actually. But... One of the top executives of one of the studios did say on camera, knowing that people would hear that he had said this, that he was quite prepared to wait it out until people started losing their houses. At which point Ron Perlman, Hellboy himself. And yes, he is. The other one doesn't count. Although speaking personally, I know him as Vincent from Beauty and the Beast. But that's by the by. Ron Perlman pointed out this isn't a direct quote did say something along the lines of yeah well that guy needs to be careful because we know where he lives and there's more than one way to lose a house which some people on the right wing of the media felt probably constituted a threat of violence uh to which i would simply say one threatening to make sure that the people you're in dispute with lose their homes is a threat of violence then he started it but that's the kind of dirty pool that the producers have kind of sunk to already. Uh, they've also done really petty stuff like um, Universal. I think it was Universal. Like all of the trees around their studio lot that were providing shade to the picketers so that now anyone who wants to picket Universal has to do so in the full California summer sun, which well, is warm. Why am I telling you this? Well, first of all, uh, if you want Hollywood news, that's the only Hollywood news there is because nothing else is happening there. But also, it does kind of illustrate how nasty this has got, how petty this has got, and 
who's doing the petty, which, as I said, gives you some idea who is the good guys and who is the bad guys in this dispute. It also, unfortunately, shows that the producers are pretty much dug in and very much clearly in it for the long haul, which means that all of the things that are going to be delayed are properly going to be delayed. And that is bad, as is their intransigence, because what the writers and the actors are asking for is not actually that much. You need to remember, we're not talking here really about your Ron Perlman's and your Kevin Costner's and your Dwayne Johnson's. We're talking about the kind of people who maybe sit in a writer's room for a series a year, the kind of people who maybe get one or two guest appearances on a show in a year. And those people are not making bank. Those people are not millionaires. Those people actually are living paycheck to paycheck. And there are people who will respond to that by saying, well, then why don't they get a proper job? Which you could argue is fair comment. But if all of the people who do those acting roles and those writing jobs did go and get what some people might be pleased to call a heavy air quotes proper job. Well, then, you know, one of those TV shows and movies that you like, they wouldn't happen. Or if they did, they would be leaning heavily on AI, which is what the producers are actually wanting. And look, if you need me to go into detail about why that's bad, you're going to have to wait until I have time to do a special on it, because there are so many reasons why that's bad. There are too many for me to mention. It's just all round sucky. And I, I, I think my position on AI is fairly clear. I can see that it could be a useful tool, but any attempt, certainly to use the current iterations of AI and any of the versions of AI that are going to be available in the next 10, 20 years, any attempt to use those to replace people in the creative industries is going to produce lower quality, less enjoyable stuff. And it will remove everything that makes modern entertainment good. It will take the chance, it will take the error out of performance. And honestly, that's where performance thrives. It's in that interaction, that dealing with stuff that at the moment only humans can do. Now, will AI ever be able to do that? I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I'm not an expert in the field. Can it do it now? No. Is there any indication that it's going to be able to do it in in anything approaching the near future? No. And honestly, if it could do that, would that be a good thing? Also, no. Do you want Skynet? Because this is how you get Skynet. We're going to move on to slightly less annoying bits of the news. What else is happening? Well, there's some stuff that's going on right now. This is old, old news. Uh, I will point you to an article about this uh, over on the website of our old friends at Bleeding Cool. Uh, Just go to bleedingcool.com and search for DC Comics sued over Superman. 
because this is a story that's come to light very, very recently. As you will know, if you're even approaching being a geek, Superman was created by Siegel and Schuster back in the late 1930s. He was the star of Action Comics number one, released in April 1938. I think the cover date was actually August, but that's comics cover dates for you. Now, Superman is rightly regarded, I think, as the first modern superhero. We can argue about who the first superhero was, about whether the stories told about the Greek gods are basically superhero stories, all of that stuff. We can argue about, but the first modern superhero, the template for the modern superhero, the dude in spandex and a cape, that was Superman. He set that template, which has been imitated so many times now. That it's Now, that may well be that he was the first, but it has been revealed in papers that are currently being auctioned by the Siegel estate that in 1939, there was some worry that National Comics, the company that would eventually evolve into DC Comics, might be sued over Superman. And honestly, it's the identity of the person they were worried about that is funniest. Because with hindsight, it's utterly ridiculous. But clearly, at that point, in 1939, it was a real, genuine concern that people really, genuinely had. Because they were worried they might get sued by George Bernard Shaw. Yes, that George Bernard Shaw, the dude that wrote Pygmalion, that they based My Fair Lady off of. That George Bernard Shaw. And the reason they were concerned is that George Bernard Shaw was the author of a play called Man and Superman. And they thought that might be enough. For George Bernard Shaw to sue. Now, this has come to light from an internal document that was sent from the National Comics editorial staff to uh, Jerry Siegel. Now, I have not been able to find any indication that George Bernard Shaw actually threatened to actually sue. So what we've got here is an early exercise in corporate paranoia over intellectual property, which is interesting. Because I'm not entirely sure that such concern would exist now. In these incredibly litigious days, I might be wrong. As I say, it's interesting to look back because you know, this is the, the very, very early days of mass publishing and of intellectual property being a thing you might want to be careful about. I mean, I don't think the S shield had appeared on a lunchbox at this point. So the idea that you know, owning the Superman name would be a big financial thing. I don't think it was fully formed yet. So anyway, there's that. I just found that interesting. As a, go and have a look at Bleeding Court for the full story, because uh, I, I love this stuff. It's so interesting how you know the, the the legal and political aspects of all of our geeky pastimes have evolved over the years. In other news, and to stay with comics, uh, I do just want to send the best wishes of this show, and indeed my shop, to the great Donny Cates. Again, if you are not massively into comic books, you may never have heard of Donny Cates. Donny Cates is a comic book writer and artist from Texas, and he's good. He's really, really good. And... He kind of dropped off the face of the earth at sort of almost instantly. 
a few months ago. I mean, I first noticed when comics that he was involved with started not arriving. And yeah, as a retailer, you get irritated about that kind of stuff. You know, if people are, are, are wanting their comic books monthly in the, you know, on the release schedule that's, that's been publicized. I sometimes have to tell people, yeah, sorry, that did come in this week. I don't know why. And that's deeply unsatisfying. It annoys my customers and it causes me at the very least, some inconvenience. So I get annoyed when this happens, and I'm going to be honest, it happens quite a lot in comics. <sighs> comics people are all brilliant. They're not always the best at time management. I think it's very fair to say, and I'm including myself in this. So when Donny Cates disappeared off the face of the earth, apart from sort of raising an eyebrow and tutting a little bit under my breath, I didn't really think about it too much. As I say, this kind of thing does happen. But now we know where he's been. And it's grim. Basically, he was in a very, very serious car accident and is has been really struggling to get himself back to health. He did finally appear at the San Diego Comic-Con uh, last week, might be a couple of weeks ago now at this point. Um, there had been all kinds of rumours and stuff um, about where he'd been. Uh, the writer Ryan Stegman had... Um, stepped in to write some of Kate's stuff. Um, he was going to be writing the Ultimate Invasion series, or at least that's what had been announced, uh, and that suddenly was being written by Jonathan Hickman. And so, you know, people were speculating big style about where he'd gone. Well, he's been in a very, very serious car accident. Um, he had uh, quite a serious head injury, and he's lost at least six months of his memory. So he's now trying to kind of piece things back together, not just physically, but psychologically as well. And that's well grim. So we'd just like to wish him a very, very speedy recovery. Um, and hopefully a swift and full recovery. I mean, not a, we know it's not going to be a swift recovery because it's already been some time. But, you know, hopefully the pace of recovery picks up and he can get back to doing whatever he'd like to be doing. So, yeah, our best wishes go to him. And now we're going to move on because we missed something over the last couple of weeks. I think it may actually technically have happened while I was away. But in any case, this is something that you should have known about that I should have told you about, and it happened in... Or at least some of it happened in space. Some of it happened in the atmosphere, because that's how rocket launchers work. They kind of have a tendency to start on the ground. But this is big, big, big news. It's big, it's huge news in the world of launch vehicles. And it's big news because for the first time since, I think, the mid-1970s, the European Space Agency does not have its own independently controlled heavy lift vehicle. And it doesn't because on the 5th of July, so yes, I am a month late with this news, on the 5th of July, 
the final launch of the Ariane 5 rocket took place uh, from the European Space Agency launch facility in French Guiana. Now, this is a big deal. Okay, The Ariane 5 was, and it feels weird to be talking about the Ariane 5 in the past tense, but there you go. The Ariane 5 was, without question, the most reliable heavy lift rocket humans have built to this point. Its track record is astonishing. It was also probably the most capable heavy lift launch vehicle. Uh, through various iterations, uh, it started with the Ariane 5G, then the G+, then the GS, then the ECA, and then finally the ES. Um, it could put groups of satellites into different orbits, which is A-level stuff. I mean, it re that really is advanced launch capability. It could put huge payloads into space. It launched the James Webb, Webb Space Telescope, which I've been going on about so much. It could also do that with ridiculous accuracy. The James Webb Space Telescope launch is the one I will highlight here because the accuracy and precision with which Ariane 5 put that spacecraft into its orbit means that it used so little of its own propellant that the James Webb Space Telescope's operational lifespan was extended by 20 years. Just think about that for a second. The James Webb Space Telescope will be able to operate for 20 years longer than its initially proposed operational lifespan, simply because it was put into space so accurately by this rocket. I mean, it's launched all kinds of other stuff. Juice went up in a uh, an Ariane 5. It's a remarkable piece of kit. But it is now done. There will be no more. Ariane Space, the independent French aerospace company that um, built the Ariane 5 for the European Space Agency, will be building no more. It is a retired design. Well, you might be wondering, why then have they retired it? If it's so good, and retiring it means that the European Space Agency doesn't have its own heavy lift rocket anymore. Why aren't they just keeping going with Ariane 5? Well, bureaucracy and logistics are the basic reasons for it. It wasn't supposed to be this way. It's never supposed to be this way. The idea was that Ariane 5 would cease operations around about now because the Ariane 6 would be in service by now. The first flight of the Ariane 6 was scheduled for a couple of years ago. I think it was actually late 2020. Now, obviously, there was a bunch of stuff going on in 2020 that meant people were not launching huge experimental prototype rockets. But it's disappointing that they haven't caught up, really. We actually don't have a launch date 
for the first launch of Ariane 6. Um, it's a direct successor to Ariane 5, as the name might suggest. That's been in development since 2014, so nearly a decade, and they haven't got it to Launchpad yet. So why don't they just extend the lifespan of Ariane 5? Good question. Very good question. That's where logistics comes in. Building a rocket is not a production line deal. At least building this kind of rocket isn't. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly sure SpaceX would hear me say that it's not a production line thing and go, oh, really? Because SpaceX seem to have mastered the production line thing. Ariane Space don't do it like that. Ariane Space is still very much a bespoke vehicle manufacturer. These are one-time use rockets. And building one is a real bespoke operation. So they need to, to know what they're building, what exact mission the launch vehicle they are constructing is going to be used for, so that they tweak it to be exactly right. To do that, you have to have mission parameters well in advance so that you can have all your ducks in a row for getting the right components, the right materials, the right parts into your factory at the right time to produce a rocket at the end of it. Well, they're not doing that. They haven't been doing that because they were expecting to be switching production to the Ariane 6. And they're not doing that. So currently, there is a hole in the schedule. Now, this is not permanent. Any more than when NASA retired the space shuttle, NASA was permanently giving up its ability to put stuff into space. Or to put, in the case of the space shuttle, humans into space. NASA could always put stuff into space. Uh, anyway, and NASA has now returned to crewed spaceflight uh, using other people's rockets, using SpaceX. And, well... Let's not talk about the other things because they're all struggling. But, you know, NASA didn't permanently give up its ability to put people into space, but it did lose that ability for a while after it tried the shuttle. ESA isn't giving up permanently its heavy lift capability, but it is losing it for a while until they can get the Ariane 6 up and running. And as I say, we do not know how long that's going to be. And the timing, I mean, it's not the worst possible timing. They... They could have had this happen while, you know, before the space launch system was available and while NASA was focused on developing various things that it wasn't able to do. You know, NASA's more or less got itself back on track with that now. But this is happening at a time when the easiest to use commercial alternative isn't available either. Because, of course, what ESA would have done in the past had there been this kind of gap in its capability is just pay the Russians to put stuff into orbit for them. And they can't do that at the moment because ESA and Roscosmos are, well, it's not that they're not talking, but they're certainly not paying each other money to do stuff. So, you know, that's an issue. Obviously, you know, maybe SpaceX could step in had the Starship been up and running, but that's not up and running either. So. Yeah, things are going to slow down at ESA for a bit, is basically what I'm saying. Oh, and speaking of SpaceX, there could be a Starship launch anytime soon. Musk did say that the next Starship launch after the 
I'm, I'm, I'm not, I refuse to call what happened a couple of months ago a failure. It wasn't really. It looked like one. Um, but he did say there would be another Starship test flight in the summer. Well, we're into August now. So if he's going to launch it in the summer, he's got about six weeks that he can sort of realistically claim he's met that target. So we'll watch that with interest because... As discussed last time we talked about SpaceX's Starship program, there's quite a lot of other stuff riding on Starship working properly. And some of the alternatives to Starship aren't going to be coming on stream. Boeing, in particular, is really struggling with its space programs at the moment, its space projects. So... There's a lot of technical difficulty going on in the world of space in general right now. So I guess, no pun intended, but watch this space for further developments, because surely to goodness, there are going to have to be some soon. But for now, we will wrap space there. And we will move on. I said last week that in the absence of being able to talk about American film and television, I would talk a lot more about comics because ain't nobody striking in comics at the moment. And it occurred to me that although the reason this show exists is because I own a comic shop, most of you guys listening out there are probably not massive comics fans. And that's one of the reasons I don't cover comics quite as much as I'd like on this show and then it occurred to me that was really really stupid of me if you're not already comics fans how am i going to make you into comics fans if i don't tell you about them so we're going to start what i'm going to call reggie's comics course and my aim here is to kind of bring you up to speed with what comics are where they've come from why they are the way they are, and, you know, other stuff like that. There's a whole bunch of knowledge that somebody like me that's been hanging around comics for the for the thick end of 40 years at this point, stuff that I just know, that I have an, a really unfortunate tendency to assume that other people know too, and there's no reason why you would. Comics have been an obsession of mine since I was a teenager. But they haven't been an obsession for most other people. So, yeah, why would you know? And one of the things I hate, and I really do hate it, and it is far too prevalent in comics, are the people who do know stuff about obscure things like comics. Because let's be honest, comics are kind of obscure as mediums of entertainment go. I really hate people who know a lot about these obscure mediums looking down on the people who don't. The gatekeeperness of it. So. Think of this as me standing by a gate and holding it open. So we're going to start with the absolute basics. What is a comic? I'm sure whether you read comics, have read comics, like comics, hate comics, think comics are a complete waste of time or think that comics are the best thing that ever happened. You have an idea of what you think a comic is, and you're probably right. A comic basically is a thing that tells a story using words and pictures, but 
words used in a particular way. So the words will be enclosed either in caption boxes, which are imposed over the top of the pictures, or they will be in speech balloons or word balloons, which are shown coming out of the mouths of the pictures of the characters and giving you the quotes of what they're saying, or in thought bubbles. Now, thought bubbles are little clouds that float over the heads of characters, uh, which indicate what they're thinking rather than what they're saying. And they're very rarely used these days. And that's it. There's some greyness around the edges. There are some blurry, blurry, blurry lines. But basically, that's what a comic is. You know it when you see it. There are people, of whom I am one, who would say that the the history and the pre-history of comics is very old. You can look at things like Trajan's Column, uh, a copy of which, a cast of which, you can see in the Victoria and Albert Museum in London and other places too, I suspect, but I know there's definitely one in the V&A. Uh, or, of course, the original in Rome, which shows in pictures, in a continuous frieze that kind of spirals round the column, the victory of the Roman Emperor Trajan. That is a visual story. And in many ways, it's a comic. Comics don't have to have visible words. You can tell a, co a, a comic story just in pictures. I would argue that Trajan's column is a comic. I don't think any of the people who made it would think it was, but then the people who made it didn't know what comics were, so of course they wouldn't. Uh, I would also point you at things like uh, Hogarth's uh, The Election series of paintings or the Rake's Progress series of paintings or indeed the Harlot's Progress series of paintings, which, again, are very definitely stories told in a series of pictures. Now, in the case of Hogarth, these pictures are oil paintings and they're again wordless but still you can follow a story about a character if you look at those paintings in sequence which I suggest you do uh, you can look at the Rake's Progress and the Election sequence of paintings if you visit Sir John Soane's Museum in London which owns both of those sequences of paintings. Uh, the Soames Museum is free to get in. Uh, I would recommend coughing up uh, a few quid and booking yourself into a guided tour because it is the most fascinating museum in London. And on that tour, you will get to see uh, the election, but also the Rake's Progress. And the Rake's Progress is not on immediate display. I'm not going to tell you how they display it because that would ruin the surprise. But again, I would argue that those sequences of paintings are, in fact, comics. They're quite slow comics. And Hogarth, again, would not have thought that that's what he was doing. But still, they fit. And there's a whole genealogy, if you like, a progression, an evolution of both comics and pulp fiction running all the way certainly from the 18th century to the present, of which comics are a part. Modern comics, the things that you would recognise as being like the things that you will see on the rack if you come to a comic shop like Destination Venus, they've been around since the 
early mid 20th century and they were not always about superheroes there is in english speaking comics uh, an unfortunate tendency to assume that comics and superheroes are not just synonymous but that superheroes is all comics really do which isn't true we've already talked in the news section of this very show that modern superheroes start with superman in 1938 followed very swiftly by batman in 1939 and they were clearly an idea whose time had come because superheroes took off incredibly quickly it's very very quick that we have characters like captain america on the scene for example but even into the 40s and 50s superhero comics were not the only game in town not even the biggest game in town for comics other genres uh, particularly detective fiction were very big in comics dc comics gets its name from its oldest publication detective comics that's what the dc stands for and detective comics is now synonymous with batman batman made his debut in detective comics 27 but the fact that batman made his debut in detective comics 27 means a couple of things first of all detective comics was not created to be a vehicle for batman and detective comics predates the modern superhero because detective comics has been around longer than action comics which is where superman started in action comics number one so superheroes not necessary they're a big part of what comics still are in english-speaking countries but they're not the only thing and never were the only thing that comics are about in the 1950s in particular you had romance comics you had war comics you had detective fiction type comics you had horror comics yeah and in other linguistic cultures you still do if you go to france uh the comics they have there they call them band designee there but it's basically well it's exactly the same as comics you will find all kinds of genre uh i, I would point you at the ones that are familiar to english-speaking audiences like tintin or tantan uh like uh lucky luke the cowboy like asterix the gore Although Asterix is kind of a superhero, if you think about it. If you go to Japan, you can see manga, which are just comics. I, I need to make this point strongly. Manga is just comics. They're not different. They're just comics. They're a type of comic. They're a particular style of comic, but they are comics. I'm not going to go into the history of manga here. I will at some point, probably. But they're comics they just have different cultural influences and different cultural touchstones to american comics which are not the only thing that is comics really important really important i can't emphasize that enough uh, obviously the comics tradition in britain you will have some knowledge of probably and that is very different to the comics tradition in the u.s as with movies and tv the u.s influence in british comics is huge because we speak the same language and therefore it was easy to import american comics into the uk uh, they initially used to come over in ships as ballast we do have in the uk our own indigenous comics tradition 
uh, I can point you at uh, Alice Loper's Half Holiday, which I would argue is actually the oldest modern comic. My American friends would probably disagree, but they'd probably disagree because they want to have invented comics, and Ali Sloper came out in 1884. Uh, was a, a comedic character, uh, kind of a, a waster, uh, a loser uh, kind of character. And, you know, Ali Sloper, he slopes around in alleyways. But he was incredibly popular uh, at the end of the 19th into the early 20th century. And you know, his stories are definitely told in comics form. Now, that humour tradition in British comics clearly extends to the comics that most British people think of when they think of comics, the Beano and the Dandy. The Dandy sadly went online only quite a long time ago now, but the Beano is still out there. I sometimes have people who talk to me about comics in the shop who are surprised to discover that the Beano is still being published, but it is. It's older than action comics. I think it's the oldest comic in continuous publication in the world. And of course, because the Beano is weekly, not monthly, the way American comics are, I don't know what edition of the Beano we're on now, but we must be well into the thousands. I remember the Beano issue 2000 coming out in the early 80s. So I haven't checked. I could check. I'm not going to. Uh, they must be, uh, if they haven't passed 4,000 now, they must they must be approaching issue 4,000. So that is absolute proof that superhero comics are not all comics can do. So in this little slot, I'm not going to talk about superhero comics very much until I've talked about everything else first. But I think that's enough history for now. What about comics you should be reading? Well, I'm, I'm not going to talk about new comics just yet. There are some classics that you should probably check out. And because I own a comic shop, I should probably also say that some of the things I'm going to recommend are actually quite hard to get. I'm not necessarily trying to sell you things that I have in stock. OK, this isn't particularly intended as an advertisement for my particular shop because I am a terrible business person. But I'm going to start with a couple of British comics that are steeped in history and an American comic series that's been around a while now, but it, I still think of as new. So we're starting with British comics and the adventures of Luther Arkwright. Now, this is something that started in the late 70s and kind of continued well all the way into the 90s, if you count the sequel series, which we'll touch on. Here, The Adventures of Luther Arkwright is a multiversal tale because, no, Marvel Comics did not invent the concept of the multiverse, which tells the exploits of Luther Arkwright, a hero character, sort of hero character, who can travel between realities. And the story of Luther Arkwright follows him as he has a series of, of adventures in what we would now call, I suppose, a steampunk kind of style. I mean, when, when Luther Arkwright started, steampunk was not a term that anybody would have recognised, but it, it's kind of steampunky. It was written and illustrated by Brian Talbot, who is one of the giants of British comics. It's very science fictiony. It's 
very adult. And I mean that in every sense of the term. It's adult in that it deals with really complicated themes and complex situations. It's also adult in the sense that were it a TV show, it would be post-Watershed. There's fairly graphic sex in Luther Arkwright, and on occasion, fairly graphic violence too. In both cases, always in service of the plot. There's nothing gratuitous about Luther Arkwright. It's an incredible piece of work. I don't think the best thing that Brian Talbot ever did. We might get to some of Brian Talbot's later work in a later show. But saying that something is not the best thing that Brian Talbot ever did is kind of like saying that's not the shiniest gold I've ever seen. It's all brilliant. And as I say, it con- the story continued into the 1990s with a sequel series called Heart of Empire, which dealt with the story of Luther Arkwright's daughter, Victoria. And if you're looking for a satire on 1990s art, culture and politics, Heart of Empire is probably what you need. Now, The Adventures of Luther Arkwright was out of print for quite a long time. Collection editions are now available. They're huge. There's a lot of Luther Arkwright. And they are unbelievably well worth reading. So that's my first recommendation. The second recommendation is a comic that you will still find on the British newsstand. To the point that I can't, as a comic shop, I can't get it. If you want a copy, you are going to have to go to WH Smith's because I think I seem to remember talking to somebody from DC Thompson at Thought Bubble. Was it last year or the year before? Anyway, I, I, as far as I'm aware, they're actually exclusive to WH Smith's now uh, in that WH Smith's have the total distribution rights to this comic. But this comic is Commando. It's published by DC Thompson, the same people who publish Verbino. It's a a Scottish company based in Dundee, which has been the beating heart of what I'm going to call the mainstream British comics industry for, what, 70 years? Something like that. Now, Commando, as the name might perhaps suggest, is a war comic. It tells stories. Well, traditionally, it tells stories of British daring do uh, as they fight the evil Nazi menace. It's a little bit more nuanced and complex than that now. These are digest size. They're four inches across, I think. Digest size comics, usually, I think, almost always black and white. Really good stuff. There's some really, really good stuff in Commando Comics. Collected editions of reprints are available. But if you want to see just amazing visual storytelling, Commando is the place to look. So that's some British recommendations. I'm going to end this segment this week with what has become the standard recommendation in my shop. This is a comic that long before I even dreamed of owning a comic shop, uh, I was well essentially forced to buy issue one of this by the then owner of Destination Venus. Hi, Darren, if you're listening. I know you're not, but never mind. Uh, and that is a comic called Saga. And I'm glad that Darren made me buy issue one because it's now worth a fortune. Well, it's worth a couple of hundred quid, but that's a fortune to me. And Saga is the only comics series 
that everyone who currently works in the shop, that's me and Alice, but also everybody who has ever worked in the shop, agrees on. We all think it's the best comic currently in print. It's the series that when people come into the shop and say, I've never really read comics, what can you recommend? It's the first thing I recommend, always. I've run the shop now since 2016. So what's that, seven years? And I've recommended it to everyone who's asked in those seven years. In all of that time, only one person has ever come back and said, nah, it was all right. The general reaction is, mate, seriously, I thought you were overselling it. I thought you were really, really hyping it up. But actually, you were totally right. I've even had people who I've sold issue one to in a morning and had them come back for the rest of the series in the afternoon. That's how good this is. Now, I'm, I'm beginning it up right at the start because I'm about to tell you what it's about and it's not going to sound anything like as good. That's because it's now a very long running series. Uh, in collection, it runs now to 10 volumes. Volume 11 is just wrapping up in single issues. So volume 12 will be starting shortly. It is an epic fantasy space opera. I think is probably the genre it falls into most neatly. It's the story of a, of a family, which starts with two people on opposite sides of a galactic war. There's Marco and Alana. Marco is a soldier fighting for his people who live on the moon of Wreath. They are humanoid with horns and can do magic. And Alana, who is a soldier fighting for the planet of Landfall, the planet around which Wreath orbits. They are humanoid, very, very much into science and winged. The war between their people has been raging for well, certainly decades, if not centuries at this point. And it has spread across the galaxy. Everybody has had to pick a side. Against that backdrop, Marco was a prisoner of war. His prison guard was Alana. They fell in love over literature, a detail which, as an English teacher, I adore. He busts him out of jail, they run away, and they have a kid. All of that is before issue one actually starts, so none of that was a spoiler. Issue one of volume one of Saga starts with the birth of the story's narrator, the child of Alana and Marco, who is called Hazel. Hazel narrates every issue of the comic to date. He is born very graphically in the opening pages of volume one of Saga, and that sets the scene for the graphic nature of this story. If there is sex in this comic, it is graphic. If there is violence in this comic, it is graphic. If there is general blood and gore, such as childbirth, in this comic, it is graphic. You do need to know that going in because you absolutely do not want to read this comic on the bus. Because anybody who's looking over your shoulder and seeing what you are reading would think you strange. But I do not want that to put you off because, just as with Luther Arkwright, None of the sex or violence or general blood and guts 
in this story is gratuitous. It never feels gratuitous. It's all there for a reason. And it's masterful storytelling. Uh, it's written by a guy called Brian K. Vaughan and illustrated by an artist called Fiona Staples, both of whom are absolutely at the top of their game. You will not read a more complex, more satisfying story. Never mind comic. You will not see a more satisfying or more complex story in any media than Saga. It's that good. Uh, a couple of caveats. Uh, some of you might have seen The Walking Dead itself, of course, based on a comic. And you might have thought that the TV show The Walking Dead killed off central characters with a sort of carefree attitude. Saga makes Walking Dead look like an overly cautious amateur in that regard. It's very important not to get too attached to any of the characters in Saga. Trust me when I tell you that nobody is safe. So some of the deaths in Saga will rip out your heart while it's beating and then jump up and down on it in stilettos. I am not ashamed to admit I personally have cried reading this comic on at least three different occasions. It's powerful stuff. And I genuinely cannot recommend it highly enough. I think if you were to look at all three of the series that I've recommended in this show, you get to see some of the range that comics can offer. Not the full range, but some of the range that comics can offer, but also how comics have developed over time. Commando has been running since the 1970s. Luther Arkwright. The bulk of it is from the late 1970s into the 1980s. And then the final couple of chapters, I guess you would say, uh, are from the 90s. And you can see the development of storytelling techniques in all of that. You can see how the industry and the way it presents itself has changed during that time. And then we get to Saga, which began in the sort of 2000s and is obviously still running, and is therefore a really good example of what comics are doing at the moment, in at least the science fiction genre. So, I don't know if you want to consider that homework. I would encourage you to read all of those things. Are any of those things the comics that people would recommend you as your first comics? Possibly not. Uh, we are going to talk about great places to start in reading comics next week. But since I would always start that list if I was talking to adults, at least, I would always start that list with Saga. So, you know, consider that one discussed and we'll talk about other stuff next week. OK, moving swiftly on. Uh, we don't have time. I'm, I'm recording this slightly on the fly because I don't have as much recording time this week as I would like. And I'm just looking at the timer and thinking, I don't really have time to drop in the wonderful woman of science that I wanted to drop in this week. So I think we'll skip the wonderful woman of science this week and move on a little bit to talk about developments in the field of science. Oh, 
Oh, we've really only got time for one major science story this week. And I'm going to go with one that is either going to be something that's so significant it could literally change the lives of every single person living on the planet and lead to multiple Nobel Prizes, or it's complete nonsense and will very quickly be forgotten to the shame of all the people involved. It's one of the two. It's either huge or fake. Or uh, fake might be harsh. It's either huge or fake or evidence of incredible error. It's one of those. And it deals with superconductors. You see, a superconductor is something that will conduct electricity without resistance. It's a little bit more complicated than that. I'm really oversimplifying it. But what are you going to do? I've got seven minutes. Um, now, these are potentially game changing in all kinds of applications from power generation to communications to computing speeds. There's so many applications for all of this stuff. And superconductors already exist and indeed are used in a range of applications. The problem with all the superconductors that we have at the moment is they don't work at normal room temperature and they don't work at normal atmospheric pressure. You've got to either put them in a vacuum or put them under intense air pressure or they've got to be incredibly cold. And the problem with that is that all of these things are difficult to do. You can't have a superconductor in your laptop. Well, you can, but it won't work. Uh, and the reason you can't is what are you going to do? Soak your laptop in liquid nitrogen? I don't think so. And this means that although we know they exist and in certain circumstances where you can cool things with liquid nitrogen and so on, superconductors are incredibly useful. Then what you could do if you could have superconductive materials that retained their superconductivity when they were at room temperature in normal atmospheric pressure. If you can pull that off, that is a proper game changer, which takes me to a group of scientists in South Korea. Uh, on July the 22nd, a group of scientists in South Korea published research claiming to have come up with a superconducting material, which they are calling LK-99, because scientists and names don't get me started. Um, they, they say that this material has an electrical res resistivity or resistance to the flow of electrical current that drops to very nearly zero at 30 degrees Celsius. That's a warm day. Now, this claim has sparked a race across the globe to recreate that material and find that it has the same properties in other experiments. Now, as of the most recent report that I can find, which was on August the 4th this year, no one has, in the scientific parlance, been able to replicate those results. Now, that does not mean that the claims of the Korean scientists are not true. It does not mean that they are lying about having done it. It does mean, so far, no one else has been able to do it. Now, I would just point out that given what a massive breakthrough this is, if 
The claim was only published on July the 22nd. It's hardly surprising that in the couple of weeks since, no one's been able to do the same thing. OK, superconductors have been around. Well, we've known about them since 1911. And it's taken till now for someone to even claim to have something that works at room temperature. So, you know, the fact that no one's been able to replicate it in a fortnight does not in any way indicate that nobody will. But until somebody does, it does only remain a claim. I am old enough to remember the claims of cold nuclear fusion in the 1980s. And again, I am unwilling to say that the scientists who claimed to have achieved cold fusion in the 1980s were liars. Uh, I am going to say that to this date, no one else has managed to do it. And so they were probably in error in some way. Now, this may be the case here. It's almost likely that that's the case here. But it's still incredibly exciting news because if true, it's huge. So, again, I will keep you informed. Keep watching this space. Okay, that is very nearly all we have time for this week. Just time for a very quick glance over at the Geek Community Notice Board. Uh, I should tell you, first of all, I will be doing a comic creating workshop at Harrogate Library sometime this month. Not sure exactly when, because I messed it up. I completely forgot. I, I spoke with the people at the library who said, could you do this thing? Could you do it? in the, the end of July or the beginning of August, can you get back to us so we can finalise a date? I forgot to get back to them. Now, we are going to finalise a date. It's going to be towards the end of August now. As soon as we finalise that, I will let you know. OK, uh, it will be for younger children, sort of primary school and early secondary school age. I am planning to do one in October half term for teenagers. So, you know, pencil that in your diary if you're in Harrogate. If you're in Harrogate and you want a comics creating workshop from me, I can still do it. Let me know. I'll figure it out. I do also want to plug Harrogate Pride, which is having its, what it's now describing as its launch event with a view to a proper Pride event next year. Uh, that's on August 26th at Geek Retreat on Oxford Street and Major Tom's Social on the Ginnel in Harrogate. I thoroughly recommend it. It should be a great day really on that in the next couple of weeks and i also want to mention something that's happening not just outside harrogate but accessible everywhere we've been contacted by the fine folk at dnd boy band that is a live streamed dnd adventure which is happening on twitch and they've got a new campaign which is about to start on august the 30th this is a completely homebrewed campaign so everything is coming out of the mind of the Dungeon Master. They're not leaning on anything, really, created by Wizards of the Coast, which is how come they can live stream it without getting sued. And it sounds fun, frankly. I'm hoping to get uh, a couple of the party on the show in the next couple of weeks. So watch this space for that. Meantime, check out D&D Boyband on Twitch and on YouTube. With that, we are out of time. Be back next week. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. And above all else, D!
Stay Geeky!